0: Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in September.
1: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Catherine Coles is a former Utah Poet Laureate. She's a current distinguished professor in the Creative Writing Program at the University of Utah. And she joins us for the program today to talk about her seventh collection of poems, Wayward, which was published last year. Catherine Coles is author also of a memoir, Look Both Ways, A Double Journey Along My Grandmother's Far-Flung Path. She's directed the Utah Symposium in Science and Literature. She's been a poet in residence at the Natural History Museum of uh, Utah and uh, at the Salt Lake City Public Library for the Poets House Program Fieldwork. She was sent to Antarctica in 2010 to write poems under the auspices of the Nat- National Science Foundation's Antarctic Artists and Writers Program. The resulting book was "The Earth Is Not Flat," published by Red Hand Press in 2012. She's received grants from the NEA and NEH and a 2012 Guggenheim Fellowship. Catherine Cole, it's a pleasure to welcome you back to Utah, uh, to uh, Access Utah. Thanks.
2: Hi, Tom. Nice to hear your voice.
1: Good. Good to hear your voice as well. Um, we've been talking uh, on this program with various artists and musicians specifically about, uh, about COVID, the, the pandemic changes that we're, we're all experiencing, the, the stresses, the ups and downs, and how do we, how do we cope? So that's where I want to start uh, briefly. Um, how's this been affecting you?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It, it, my husband and I were just talking this morning because, of course, we had all but a hurricane, um, on Tuesday, yeah, and, and I think you guys got it possibly even worse than than we had it at the very northern edge of Salt Lake City. And uh, I was saying to him that I felt yesterday as if we had been walking in this kind of tightrope and managing, but that that we were just managing and that an additional stress, was not what we needed. And I, and I think we felt yesterday really out of sorts and as if we've been thrown for a loop by something that in other circumstances we would have, you know, I mean, we had to get out the chainsaw and clear our driveway, uh, et cetera. But we would have kind of taken that in stride in a way that was very difficult to do this time around. Um, it feels like it's been... A year of wonders, and I'm using wonder in the sense of ha, huh? um, as opposed to in the sense of the marvelous or miraculous. So, of course, we've had that too between um, COVID and the earthquake and uh, the weather events that we've that we've had how about you how
1: are you guys doing up there uh boy it really resonates yeah we we got it pretty bad here a L- lot of trees down and yeah. uh, a lot of chainsaws out <laughs> and you know that resonates yeah. with me you talk about that sort of underlying stress right that uh yeah uh, if we have an emergency or whatever we we, we probably had more reserves going in but it, it's been sapped by by the pandemic and everything that's been going on uh how do you how do you how do you deal with that how do we deal with that
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that we're doing all the time is focusing on what we need to do and trying to repress that anxiety and that stress that's a kind of constant background noise for us. And I think mostly we do deal with it, but it's that you feel as if everything is more than enough. And when one more thing comes along, um, it's really just hard 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 to manage and how do you deal with that is i guess you just you just do and you become aware that um all around the world people are actually dealing with more than you are dealing with um we're at least in a position of immense privilege i'm doing my teaching uh and mentoring from home which is not perfect and and uh It's very difficult and requires a really a heightened level of attention um, to the students, but I have a roof over my head, and I have food, and I have a paycheck, Um, and not very far away from me in this town, people are much more precariously situated than I am, and then if you expand your imagination out into the world at large, even before the pandemic, there are a lot of people who are dealing with a lot more stress than we are.
1: Mm. Uh, so University of Utah is, is, I guess, totally online, right? Uh, you remote uh, teaching, uh, but you are interacting with students. I'm wondering how how they're doing, uh, as far as you can tell.
2: I, I think that, I mean, they, they need, um, at least I perceive, they're not demanding a lot extra from me, but I feel th- um, they're, need and their anxiety. Uh, I, I feel, you know, one thing I think is that I'm in my 60s now. I've, I am still in my career. I plan to be in it, you know, pretty much until I die. Though not necessarily the teaching part, part of it. But I've had a really good run. And these are young, really gifted, smart able young people who are just embarking on their lives and they're doing it under such difficult circumstances. I admire them. I feel their need. I'm trying to figure out ways all the time to give them um, a little extra here and a little extra there just so they understand that even though we're separated, they're they're in my attention, and um, I'm trying to give them as much as i can mm.
1: and you know remotely and that's kind of how we all feel mm-hmm. I, I think um yeah. you know social distancing and uh um it, it, there just seems to be a a disconnect i wonder how how you're trying to bridge that that gap uh, safely
2: yeah I, you know so so as i said my husband and i are a little bit older we're trying to be as careful as we can i have um I have a small class of nine PhD students and I can see all of them at the same time on, on my screen. So that's very helpful. But my undergraduate class has 35 students. So I'm managing, um, you know, I can't see them all at once and I'm trying to manage the hand raising function. And yesterday I, I walked them through, you know, how to, how to raise their hands because most of them haven't actually figured that out yet. So one of the things that I'm surprised by is that I expect my students as digital natives to be able to just walk in and master all this stuff. And it's, it's no easier and maybe even more difficult for them, maybe perhaps than it is for me. So I can't see them all. I'm trying to figure out how to see if they have their hands up. They're texting me. Um, through the Zoom function at the same time. And um, I I just don't feel as if I'm wired to have all of this input and be managing all of this input at once. But, you know, I'm getting better at it. And um, I think that my students feel as if I'm pay- at least paying attention um, and putting a lot of energy in their direction. And then the plus side is that we're just, reading in that class wonderful poems together. We started with Sappho, and um, we're on Bronte. We're going to be doing Emily Dickinson next week. And so to be able to have, to engage with an art form that is focusing our attention on what is pleasurable and what is beautiful, and also what is emotionally complex, what lets in all these other emotions, fear and sorrow, grief... Uh, is, I think, really powerful and something that, at least to me, is very helpful and it seems to be helpful for the students as well.
1: Interesting. I was just going to go there. Um, so, so during, okay. during pandemic times, or I guess during any regular times, what, uh, maybe expand on that. What what does poetry do for you? What does poetry do for your, you know, the people you uh, write for and that your students that you introduce uh, these poems to?
2: the things that I I say about good poems is that they travel across time and space. And I think you'll remember during 9-11, which some of my students weren't even born yet when that happened, but how all of a sudden everywhere, Auden's poem, September 1st, 1939, was being heard on the radio, um, etc. I read it on the radio on September 12th. Um, that year. And before we knew it, um, it was everywhere. People were quoting it. And it actually has resurfaced a couple of times since then. And it resurfaced as the pandemic came in, even though the imagery wasn't as directly applicable. And that's because it engaged a set of human emotions and anxieties that are present in catastrophe wherever catastrophe happens. So what a good poem does is provide the words that, as Mark Strand said, tell us in so many ways exactly where we are, wherever we are, um, and therefore it provides us with a space in which to to look at and think about and handle and experience the full range of emotions that we have in a given situation. Mm-hmm.
1: Handle an experience, yeah, I like that. Uh, do you uh, uh, in, in during these times? And, and oh, by the way, overlaid uh, on everything we've been talking about, we've got uh, the, the the protests and this tumultuous election uh, season, which is yeah. another stress on top of things. Um, do you do you continue the same writing process, or has that changed?
2: Um, right now, I'm not writing as intensely. I'm not writing poems as intensely as I often do, and that's because I've just decided that I'm giving myself more or less over to my students and dealing with my students. I have a a deadline for an essay that I have to turn in um, in a few weeks, and so that's the thing that's occupying my creative life because people are expecting it. Um, But I have been um, writing poems pretty much constantly through the whole pandemic, the whole experience, until I made this conscious decision that I'm not going to let that take my attention too much. And I think that that's partly because poetry is just how I process things. Um, it's very close to the surface for me all the time. And so I'm not a person who, for whom my access to poetry is blocked by... Anxiety or difficulty, as a rule.
1: Well, could you expand on that a little bit? How do, How do you process uh, through through poetry?
2: Um, I think, for one thing, um, language as a pro- as a device. Uh, so I have language going in my head all the time. I'm suspecting that all of us do, but maybe for a poet, that's happening in a different kind of way. And so when I'm reading or listening to something, uh, something catches at my attention, my automatic response to that is linguistic. That language for me is running under the surface, very close to the surface all the time. And so it doesn't necessarily take much to pull it up above the surface to a place where I can access it. And I would actually even suspect that disruptions... um, if you're thinking about the surface of water that's quiet, if it's disruptive, disrupted, then it's, it pops up in places and, um, and becomes visible or accessible. Uh, and, and I would say that that's not something that um, came automatically to me. That's something that's come after decades and decades and decades of consciously, in a disciplined way, coming to language and immersing myself in language and making myself available to language. And then what has happened over time is that language has therefore made itself available to me in an, in an ever-increasing way.
1: Hmm. Well, let's uh, take a break. When we come back, we'll hear some of the results of that. I want to get into the some of the poems in the latest collection, which is Wayward, which was published uh, last year. Um, we're talking with Katherine uh, Coles, who's former Utah Poet Laureate and current Distinguished Professor at University of uh, Utah, who's uh, joining us uh, today. We'll have more following this break.
0: Support for Project Resilience Programming on UPR is brought to you by USU Center for Persons with Disabilities, working to create healthy, inclusive communities through innovative research, service, technical assistance, and education. Information at cpd.usu.edu.
2: This is Science by the Slice.
1: Once considered relatively rare, dengue fever is popping up throughout the globe, including the United States. Most people infected with the mosquito-borne virus recover, but the disease can cause lethal complications. Curiously, while people who have recovered from the virus develop immunity to the strain that infected them, they've often become more susceptible to infection by different strains of the virus. USU data scientist Kevin Moon is a part of a multi-institution team developing deep neural networks to extract detailed data from large datasets collected from infected people in an effort to find preventative measures and therapies.
2: This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in the sciences and mathematics. Details at usu.edu science.
0: Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in September.
1: Thanks for listening to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. Um, My guest for the hour is Catherine Coles, former Utah Poet Laureate, current distinguished professor at the University of Utah, author of uh, several collections of poetry, also author of a memoir, Look Both Ways, A Double Journey Along My Grandmother's Far Flung Path. Um, and Catherine Cole's uh, couple of novels, I think. Yeah,
2: I've, yeah, I don't necessarily recommend them. Yeah,
1: yeah. I was watching a, a, an interview you gave for, for I think it's Whitworth College. Very interesting. Some of the themes uh, from your work. Uh, yeah, and you, you said that, especially on the first one, you would, <laughs> wouldn't recommend it. But I'm interested, before we get into Wayward, um, you talked there about uh, this, this idea of, uh, you know, poetry to fiction, and then back again. And uh, you said you started out as a, a, what was, I guess, in vogue at the time, the free verse confessional poet, but uh, you weren't necessarily a tortured artist, didn't have enough uh, bad happen to you to, to continue in that vein.
2: Yeah, I think that's right, and, and I think in spite of everything the last year, the year of wonder, um, I'm still not a tortured artist. I still think of myself as being mostly what Wayward reveals me to be, which is a poet of, of pleasures primarily, um, although the pleasures are narrower and harder won right now than they were when this... Now, this book that now looks so innocent to me
1: what's yeah. written. It looks looks innocent to you now, yeah, because uh, it was published in twenty last year, right? And then uh, yeah, starting in yeah. March, uh, all this started happening in this year. Um, I, I want to just pause briefly on that that phrase "tortured artist." Um, mm-hmm. I, I was <laughs> I, I was watching an interview with the uh, with the comedian um, Patton Oswald. And he was uh, forcefully refuting this idea that that I think some people have that in order to to get to the highest art, you have to be tortured. And he said, "No, that's (laughs) that's totally not true." I I think you would probably agree with that.
2: I think I I do agree with that. I I think at least for me, I can only really speak for myself and also for the work that I love. That that's just wrong. Um, One of the things, the ideas with which I challenge my students and especially the younger they are, the more they think they have to be tortured. Um, one of the ideas with which I challenge them is the idea that the only reason to engage with poetry is pleasure. Now the pleasures are complicated. One of the pleasures of poetry is that it can be difficult, One of um, both intellectually and emotionally. Um, but navigating that difficulty is one of the pleasures that it has to offer you. And if you don't get pleasure from it, there's really not much point in it because poetry is not a vehicle for messaging or information it's a vehicle for experience
1: mm. um so uh, from that interview you you talked about uh, you know going to a novel and then you, know, you didn't feel like it was very successful but then you you did say that you felt like, uh, in the experience of writing that, you had gained tools to help you uh, to go back to poetry.
2: Yeah, it. it um, I'm much better in shorter f- forms, and you mentioned the memoir. It took me uh, almost 20 years to write that book, and, and I'm actually pretty happy with it. Um, but I had to teach myself kind of day by day how to write it, and um, I feel as if I was successful in doing that. But with the novels, I was doing the same thing, and I I just never quite got it. But coming back to the poems um, without realizing I was doing it at the time, um, I found that I had created for myself a much more expansive voice. So even though a poem, at least my poem, will never be the size of a novel or even close, there's a lot more space inside my poems than there ever was before I wrote Long Form Prose. Hmm.
1: Well, let's jump into uh, Wayward. Um, so the, your seventh collection, uh, do you feel the themes are changing or do, do similar themes to, to previous collections?
2: I think that there are some differences and also some similarities. I used to You know, when I was writing poems that were really explicitly about science, at the beginning, I felt as if I had um, somehow to very carefully explain myself in those poems. And now I feel much more, and this relates back to the the question of the availability or the accessibility of language, Um, I feel as if the poems are really much more about engaging in a kind of passionate thinking on the page that I'm trying to make available to the reader as well
1: mm-hmm. um, I was very interested to uh, note and you, you have this in the kind of the notes at the beginning of uh, of this uh, collection um, that some of these uh, poems were written in a collaborative conversation with a visual artist Marina O'Hara uh, is it Yuri
2: Your. Your. Yeah. um, Yeah. Maureen and I have, um, I think of this as collaboration as a kind of friendship. She and I have worked um, back and forth together for, I think, for almost 30 years now. Uh, Sometimes more intensely and sometimes less intensely. It's a lot harder now that we can't actually get together in the studio and really trade stuff back and forth in person, but... Um, her images inform these poems, and, and the poems also inform her images.
1: That's that's an interesting collaboration. Is is that you do? Do you find that you do? You've been involved in collaborations with scientists as well. And that's been an important part of your work, right? Uh, bridging bridging that yeah. gap. Uh, do you find this similar yeah, or differences?
2: differences? Um, I think in some ways it's it's similar, although. Um, I think that the translation from poem to image or the relationship between poem and image, is maybe somewhat more intimate than um, the application of science that you'll see it at least in some of the work. I mean, a lot of the poems really do investigate these larger epistemological um, questions and ideas uh, that science also engages from, but from a completely different direction um, with the, in working with a painter, where we really meet is at the nexus of image and word, um, which is less abstract, I think, than, than the thinkier stuff that's really about, um, how do I know I'm alive? <laughs> how do I know the difference between myself and the world? Right? Those kinds of questions. Mm.
1: I wonder if I could have you read uh, an example. What uh, one that st- stands out to me is "Landscape with Angel." Sure. What page?
2: Is uh, page that seventeen. You know, page seventeen,
1: at least in the electronic version here.
2: Great. Yep, yeah, there it is.
1: And, and this, Landscape uh, with Angel. I think this is a, this is an example of of this uh, collaboration, right?
2: Yeah, it is, and in fact, this is one of the poems. the collaboration um, sort of runs through all my poems all the time, but sometimes there's a poem that really directly addresses an image of Maureen's. Um, And this is one of those poems. And one of the things that I can never remember is um, with the titles of these things, who came up with the title? Because sometimes I'll take a title from her painting, and sometimes she'll have a painting that's untitled. And She'll take a title from one of my poems and attach it to the painting. I'm pretty sure that this title also came from Maureen. Landscape with Angel. What does it need with wings? It lofts over soft hills and furrows with no apparent energy or effort. Feathers and frock and hairdo all unfluttered. Urgency expresses itself only through the horizontal body. Or would if this messenger didn't look stiff as a board surfing the air. While we're at it, why does it wear clothes? No small human embellishments hide among the drapes. No secret conceals itself in cunning folds. If it's earth's not heavens, the landscape lies always under night dotted with lights which might be tended fires and might be wild on the edge of hope the edge of blow up
1: hmm yeah beautiful um, I wonder if there is there a poem that you'd like to choose read next
2: oh um, there's a question for you right. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, sure. Let's just, um, let's read the, the first one, which is called How We Sing, and I think really directly engages and implicates the pleasures of poetry. Um, there are some body parts in here. Is that all right?
1: Uh, yeah, I think that's okay. Uh, none, okay. Of the, none of the seven just, deadly uh, words that the FCC doesn't want us to say. N- yeah. I,
2: I believe none of those words. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, this is this is how we sing. With our leg bones, with alphabets and lambkins, with bat wings hung out to dry, with the birds, with our heads on our sleeves, from the lion's throat in stitches, riding the backs of dragons, bohemian square-pantried, squeezing our boxes, penises wagging breasts, Akimbo, mouthing feet, hearts in our hands, whistles bare barefaced, captive in time.
1: Hmm. W- with our leg bones, <laughs> that's a striking image. We sing with <laughs> our leg bones. yes. Um, I wonder there, there there's uh, some of the forms here are are interesting to me. Um, I have to look at the table of contents here. There's uh, a palimpsest. Um, Palum. Palam—is that how you pronounce yeah. it? Yeah, uh, Archimedes. Um,
2: it, yeah, the Archimedes problem says. Do you have a uh, uh, there twenty? Is,
1: page, page, page
2: twenty. Twenty. Um, yeah. So uh, one of the things that I'm really interested in, and you know, part of the reason for this is that all of my work in, directly engages what I take out once I have a bunch of stuff down on the page and it took me 20 years to write the memoir because it was 1,500 pages long and I had to keep cutting it and cutting it and then it would grow and then I would cut it. And I work with poems the same way, but it's easier because, you know, you can keep a poem, all of it, right in front of you at a time. At a time. So this is actually about a um, uh, poem sets that they found um, that had an original, it was... It was written over, there was a text that was written over an original manuscript that had been written by Archimedes. And in a palimpsest, that original manuscript sort of rises back up to the surface through the text that's been written over it, which was just a fascinating idea, the idea that you could find uh, in a library a book in which something had been erased and then was re-emerging again.
1: Yeah, just a fascinating concept. To... Yeah, yeah, would you read that? That would be great.
2: Yeah, and I'm happy to, and I'll try to sort of indicate um, through a slight vocal change, but there are, um, are moments in the poem in, in, that are in italics in which... Um, uh, the idea is that you have this other text emerging through the text that um, is the ordinary text that here, that is here. So the Archimedes' palimpsest. Not erased, equations painted over, curious mathematics, a leaf, a spiral, a ghost, fluttering the edge of vision, a style of inquiry, all there is to find out. So give it up. Evangelists here live in color, mouths popped around, leaves disappear in flight, new truth. Beneath, behind, a set of pieces can be arranged in the form of a square. What did Archimedes draw? Straight lines, off kilter, floating bodies, Old-time preachers, again, more like examples than proofs, turn instead to a radical idealization. If time is not a river, maybe one mind absorbs into another, then bleeds out, accumulated catastrophes. Not every advance, improvement, the past as it will be, hints and layers, Recoverable, interpreted, the diagram, shows, not known. Hmm.
1: And that's um, the palimpsest. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah,
2: I'm not sure I've ever read that aloud yeah. before. Yeah,
1: <laughs> there's some difficulties in reading it, right? Because you, you, uh, to yeah. get the full effect, you have to be on the page. Uh, speaking of which, there's several uh, poems... Which, which are titled with the, the infinity symbol.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, uh, this is fascinating, um, which, which takes the poem before, the poem after, but uh, most of the text in faint uh, uh, text, and then some bolded.
2: Yeah, um, a, f- a friend of mine suggested, Melanie Rayton, um, a wonderful friend of mine, uh, suggested at some point when I was doing erasures that um, maybe I should erase myself which is something that I also did at the end of the Antarctica book, I think, for the, for the first time. Uh, and she took that idea from the Antarctica book and applied it to this. And she started erasing some of my poems, and then she suggested that I erase some of these as well. And I, I think one of the things that I was really looking for was the sense of continuity. I wanted the end of the book to send you back to the beginning of the book in a really explicit way. Um, which it does, and there was a, um, an early uh, proof of this book where somebody at the press um, who wasn't paying attention had swapped the last two poems and so that erasure that's supposed to take you back to the beginning of the book was before the end of the book instead of at the end of the book. And I immediately said, no, no, you can't, uh, you can't do that. So some of those proofs are out there, and and if I ever get famous after I die, they'll probably be worth a lot of money. Um, but uh, I was trying to figure out how to organize the sections of this book to give the sense of a break between. The groups of poems, but also a sense of that continuity. And so, um, I took the end of the last poem in one section and the beginning of the first poem in the next section, faded out most of it, and then tried to create an erasure poem out of what I'd left in the, in the bold, mm. um, in the book. I, again, infinity being a kind of ongoingness. Into time. I
1: mm. wonder if you could. This is an interesting concept. I wonder if we expanded this idea of erasure. You you say you first used this, and in the earth is not flat.
2: Yeah, and that was really partly about um, about the the landscape, which is so provisional. Um, and this is just because of reflection and refraction with the ice and the sky and the water, so that um, you could be looking straight out a mountain range and think that it was right where you were looking. But in fact, it exists in a different place and is only getting projected <laughs> into the place, into the place where you're looking. And so I was trying hard in that book to really work with the idea that the thing that you are so sure you're seeing might actually not be what you're seeing and what gets revealed to you through these um, optical illusions and um Mirages that are confronting you all the
1: time. Mm. Oh, of course, we're talking about uh, Antarctica. Um, is is, right. is it what the geography, the the uh, I guess the the weather? What's what, what's what's happening? And I'm sure this happens other places, right? But uh, you experienced it in Antarctica.
2: Yeah, there, there's some suggestion that the wreck of the Titanic might actually have occurred because they could see the iceberg, but they were seeing it in a different place from where it actually was um, and so what happens is through reflection and refraction and we experience this all the time in the desert in the summer when we look out um, and we it, you think you're seeing water right but you know you're seeing land and we're used to this we accommodate it. but these effects are so extreme that the example that I use in the Antarctic book is from actually from Shackleton's diary. They're out there they're in big trouble winter is coming they're basically shipwrecked and stuck and they are scientists so they know that they're looking at the Sun setting for the last time before it comes up again three months later right so they know that they're watching the sunset and they know that they're not going to see it again for three months but as a matter of fact over the course of the afternoon it keeps rising again and setting again into the ocean. And this is a a function of the light operating in such a way that the sun, the image of the sun, is projected onto the clouds. So what they're seeing is a projection of the sun um, as it's being reflected and refracted on ice and water and clouds not the actual sun itself. Does that make sense? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. Very interesting.
2: Yeah. And so I was fascinated by this because I would get up in the morning and look out my window and I would see a mountain range sort of off to the left. And then later in the day, I would go back and I would look and it would be more off to the right. Hmm.
1: And of course, uh, uh, you know, a lot of metaphorical uh, possibilities from this phenomenon, right? Right. (laughs)
2: <laughs> right. How yeah. do you know that what you're looking at is real, which is one of the fundamental questions um, of the human mind?
1: Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. And, and you deal with this in, in a lot of your work. Um, I, I just want to take a little aside here, um, then we'll go to break. Um, but, of course, you went to Antarctica to write poems on the auspices of the National Science Foundation's Antarctica, Antarctic Artists and Writers Program so, so the, mm-hmm. the National Science Foundation I guess uh, thought it important to have artists and writers there this is I guess, gets into that yeah. intersection that I guess they're feeling it's important that this has been important in your in your career
2: yeah it's been hugely important in my career and in some ways it was life-changing we talked about my sort of move from a kind of careful meticulousness to a an expansive pleasure in my work, and I think that it was the trip to Antarctica that really—it was coming, but that really enabled me to make that jump from one thing to the other. And that's just because um, you are so small and so aware of your tininess that maybe the only that the only um, rational responses to that are either to have a nervous breakdown or just catapult yourself into the joy of mm. understanding your place on the earth for the first time, <laughs> um, which is tininess and total unimportance. Um, so for me, that was a really transformative moment. And I think that um, the National Science Foundation over time began to understand that as absolutely vital and important, as the work of the scientists is down there, Um, there is a kind of interpretive labor that the artist does in that kind of landscape that's different and really additive to what the scientists are doing.
1: Um, You have said that literature and science are part of the same project. What, What do you mean there?
2: Oh, yeah. Well, we're all trying to understand the world, um, we're all trying to understand uh, how it is that we experience the world, what our senses are doing. And depending on the kind of artist that you are, you, if, you're a, if you're a poet or a visual artist or probably a filmmaker or a photographer, you're looking and you're looking and you're looking. In the way that a scientist is looking and looking and looking. Now, the lenses that you use for the looking and for the interpretation of what you're seeing are really different. But what we're all trying to do, I think, is expand human understanding of the universe we live in.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if you talk, I think this is related to the, uh, a program called Fieldwork you were involved in.
2: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Um, so this is a, a great program, and in fact, when you and I hang up, I'll be talking with the um, Poets House director about some extensions to, this, to the program. So what Poets House does is bring um, poets together with scientists, and they've done it before through zoos, but this new project was um, to do this through natural history museums. And uh, Salt Lake City and Milwaukee were the pilot locations for this new program, which Poets House is going to look to expand into other natural history museums uh, across the country. And so the museum will partner with the library and with a poet. And um, the museum brings its scientists to bear, the library brings its resources in literature to bear. Um, The poet brings the knowledge of poetry to bear, and they all just get together and figure out how to create a collaboration um, that uses both poetry and science to illuminate our world. And one of the goals of this program was to give um, people who are more literary a kind of access to STEM learning, and then also to give people who consider themselves to be more on the scientific side a bridge into poetry at the same time. So we did a whole array of programming here in Salt Lake City, and the permanent um, relic of that is a poetry path where pieces of poems are literally carved in stone along the Bonneville shoreline trail up at the Natural History Museum, and then also um, in the garden on the north side of the library and in places inside the library as well, downtown.
1: Yeah, that that sounds fascinating. Um, So what, uh, I think I was reading poets like Octavio Paz?
2: Yeah, we have Octavio Paz. There's some uh, Native American poets. Um, Rilke uh, is in there, Emily Dickinson. um, Her whole poem um, to make a prairie, it takes a clover and one bee, uh, is, um, is stenciled, uh, in the library at the place where you, you leave for the roof garden where the beehives are, um, up there. So the idea was to get poems or pieces of poems that really engage the natural world in a way that's meaningful, um, exactly where you're standing which is either at the library or up at the Natural History Museum.
1: Yeah, that's, that's, that sounds wonderful. What, what's the response been?
2: The response has been um, really great, and one of the things that's wonderful about having these, these prompts be permanent, right, is that I'll be going along, and I'll totally forget about this project because I'm doing something else right now, and then it will pop up on Facebook or somewhere somebody will have been on the trail or up at the library and we'll take a picture and put it up and say, look, I found this poem. Uh, And I've had the privilege of being up uh, on the shoreline trail and watching hikers and runners and cyclists sort of go by and they might go by one of these, but at some point it kind of impinges on their consciousness that there are these um, these great big rocks with pieces of language on them and they'll slow down and maybe they'll get off their bicycle and and they'll say, "What's this? what's this?" And if they keep going and they find it, there actually is um, a rock up there that tells them right what it is, what it is that they're looking at. But for me one of the pleasures is thinking that even without that rock that tells them what they're looking at, they've just encountered some glorious piece of language in a beautiful, glorious place outside. And that part of the project of making sense of that is part of the project of being human in that place at that time. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, let's uh, go to break. Before we go to break, um, by the way, we're talking with Catherine Coles, um, whose new uh, collection is titled Wayward. I wonder if you'd read us another uh, a poem. I'm, I'm uh, the One I connected with is on page 23, It's called The New Day.
2: Uh, (laughs) All right. The New Day enters in the heroic mode, feathered and helmeted, muscle-bound for glory, smelling of scorch. Raise that sword a little higher, if you can lift it, and buckle your straps tight. Insert fanfare. Nobody still gets to ride the train all afternoon, dozing. Scotch that clickety-clack, the sudden, dark plunge. In the underworld, nobody gets to be just a body anymore, ripe, a little bloody, and needing its toenails clipped. Me, poor me, I'm steeping in juices, greased and gristled. In the past, I've been pretty enough, though, to make up for anything, <laughs> the new day. Yeah, yeah.
1: The new day. Yeah,
2: excellent. It's, uh, I'm hoping that this is a poem that travels. You know? yes. here we are, all of us, getting up every morning. You know, and going back into the underworld that the world is presenting us yeah, with. Now.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, uh, let's take a break, come back with our final segment with, uh, with Catherine Coles. You're listening to Access Utah.
0: Support for UPR programming comes from our members and USU Extension's Stay Happy, Stay Healthy campaign. The pandemic has caused confusion and uncertainty, and it is easy to become anxious and skeptical. A positive attitude can help in times of stress. Tips available at stayhappystayhealthy.usu.edu. Support also comes from the Cache Valley Visitors Bureau, showcasing the great outdoors with hiking, fishing, and camping. Information on trails, campsites, and more available online at explorelogan.com or visit 199 North Main in Logan. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in September.
1: Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Catherine Coles. She's a former Utah Poet Laureate, current Distinguished Professor in the Creative Writing Program at University of Utah, and she's joining us for the hour. We're talking about her seventh collection of poems called Wayward, uh, published last year. Catherine Coles is also author of a memoir, Look Both Ways. She has directed the Utah Symposium in Science and Literature, been a in residence at Natural History Museum of Utah, and uh, she's received grants from the NEA and NEH and a uh, 2012 Guggenheim uh, Fellowship. Catherine Coles, I wanted to read uh, just a, l- a little, uh, a paragraph from a review. I found this on Amazon. This is from Emery Blue. I don't know anything about the reviewer, but uh, they said something interesting. Um, let me scroll down in my document here to, to get this. Um, you've referenced... Emily Dickinson a couple of times. Mm -hmm. This reviewer compares you to Emily Dickinson. I don't know if that makes you uh, (laughs) uh, flattering or uncomfortable. Uh, I just want to read this, uh, just a couple of paragraphs. Uh, The reviewer says, I love reading Coles' work through time, experiencing the profusions of pleasure she offers through all her strategies, exploring with her the joys and failures of our efforts to translate experience into language. Always hoping to spark sensation, exhilaration, curiosity, brief flashes of insight, and the illusion of understanding in the listener. And then this paragraph Catherine Coles delivers her readers as close to these impossibilities as any writer since Emily Dickinson, a poet with whom Coles seems to sing, both intrepid enough to trust the reader's agility, to walk along the dangerous edges of incomprehensibility through elision and erasure. Why worry? Well, we will all fail in every language. <laughs> Um, I wonder if you agree with that, uh, the comparison to Emily Dickinson.
2: Well, I mean, I'm thrilled by the comparison, and I'm sitting here thinking I should actually go look more often on Amazon <laughs> than I do because I haven't seen this review. And um, I I feel um, with Emily Dickinson such a kindred um spirit. I feel her to be a kindred spirit in terms of what she is trying to do. I, I think I agree with this re- reviewer that, um, that our projects are allied with each other, and I've learned so much from Dickinson um, reading her. I've read her more and more seriously and carefully, and I've written about her quite a lot in the last five, five years or so. Um, now, I would say that as thrilled as I am by the comparison I don't know anyone who can touch the concern. <laughs> um, certainly, I'm not. But the idea that that um, the ways in which I've really tried to model more than anything else her courage as a writer—if um, that is visible to people—then nothing could possibly make me happier than than mm-hmm. to hear them.
1: Uh, I love this line of the review, exploring uh, with her, talking about you in this case, the joys and failures of our efforts to translate experience into language. I I imagine they're both, right? Joys and failures sometimes.
2: (laughs) Well, you know, I I think at every moment um, you're failing as, as a poet. And one of the things that I've been trying... Um, to communicate with my students. And again, we talk about the ways in which I think my work has really changed, especially over the last mm, decade or so. Although I think if you look, you can see that it's more gradual than I feel it to be. I feel as if there was a moment for me in which um, I really did just say, uh, not use one of the seven words, what the heck. Um, I'm just not go i'm going to trust my reader um to come along with me as long as i'm doing the work to make that possible and i'm going to trust myself to be failing or nearly failing all the time Mm -hmm. because that's really what the project is i mean it's such a privilege isn't it to be human in the world even now it's such a privilege and such a joy Um, To be given moment by moment, not only the opportunity, but the necessity to be risking and failing Mm -hmm. constantly. And through that, to be, we hope, getting better, getting closer to whatever it is that we're trying to do. So I find that review to be absolutely the most thrilling thing that I've heard about my work for a long time. Thank you for
1: no, oh, good. It. good, I'm glad we shared it. Um, we just have a couple of minutes left. I, I would love to get another poem in. Um, uh, is there one that jumps to your mind, or, or I could suggest one?
2: Why don't you suggest one?
1: Uh, yeah, there. Uh, I think it's the last poem, um, or the next last poem. It's called Away, page
2: 105. Ah, yeah, sure. Um, this is sort of... Uh, um, it's the first poem I think I wrote for this book, And it connects back to the Antarctica work, Um, Away. There are reasons for wanting distance. The impulse may begin with a blade of grass or the brash sweep of goose honk over the ear. But how did it carry you here? No tree, nor well, or pasture, no moss soft for your step. Only ice and stone shifting underfoot, opening and closing, Only sky and stars, present or absent, cold either way. Sometimes you know you could die of anything, and you do not shiver. Having been born across deserts, through forests, over mountains, and water to be here, you are light and strong as a gust of wind. Somewhere an engineer is imagining a sail, an engine, ways to give you wings, press a key, escape, here the eye pinpoints and the birds are eccentric and personable. Not a legless beast, nor microscope-like, nor microscopic lichen belongs to the home you've left. Not an ear recognizes your voice above the wind, and you still love everything, bedazzled. Who says this isn't the world? You have not withdrawn. You have plunged in deep. Who can say what will call the heart?
1: or fill it. Beautiful. Uh, That's uh, from the latest uh, collection called Wayward. That's the poem called Way. The Wayward is uh, out and available right now. We are at the end of our time. So, uh, uh, Catherine Coles, uh, former Utah Poet Laureate, current Distinguished Professor at University of Utah. Latest collection is called Wayward. Uh, It's been a great pleasure as always. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you. It's been a pleasure for me as well.
1: And uh, thanks to everyone for listening to Access Utah.
0: Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and Cache Valley ENT and the Allergy Clinic, practicing ear, nose, and throat medicine, allergy services, and facial, plastic, and reconstructive surgery, and offering hearing aid services with audiologist Dr. Teejan in Logan and Providence. CacheValleyENT.com. You're listening to Utah Public Radio. Coming up next here on UPR is Radio Lab, followed by Latino USA at 11 o'clock. Stay with us. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL
1: Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan,
2: and UPR.org.